What is world history the story of? Is it the story of kings and queens and presidents and prime ministers? Is it the story of wars and the rising and falling of different empires? Is it the story of powerful and perhaps secretive organisations trying to bring about their own agendas? Is it the story of economic rise and economic collapse? Well, if we base our conclusions on, on the news, on the history books or on what we read online, we'll no doubt come to one of those conclusions. But while not denying that these people and things play a role, what God wants us to be absolutely 100% confident about this morning is that in world history it is God who's pulling the strings and he's doing so in order that he might glorify himself and save a people for himself through Jesus Christ. We come to God's word this morning and it reassures us that whatever it looks like, God is in control and he is working out his purposes just as he has been doing right throughout history. And this is good news for those of us who are believers in Jesus Christ. Because it's very easy to be left feeling frustrated and powerless. Decisions are taken by people we don't trust, their decisions that we don't agree with. And they have a very real impact on our lives at times. And yet when we open the Bible, we're presented with a, a glorious vision of the God who works all things together for the goods of his people. And in this chapter, we have what's been called the most God-centered, God-exalting, God-saturated sermon in the Bible. The most God-centered, God-exalting, God-saturated sermon in the Bible. And my prayer this morning is that the Holy Spirit would so impress this true vision of reality on us that it would enable us to live confidently for Christ. That even though there, there is so much around us that could frustrate us and leave us feeling powerless, that we would see today that the real power lies with God and that he demonstrates that power above all for the salvation of his people. And my prayer uh, today, to, to quote the words of verse 15, is that this really would be a word of encouragement to you this morning. Uh, and if deep down there's someone here and you know you're not yet a believer in Jesus Christ, it, it's my prayer that you would see, in light of all this, the absolute seriousness of what you're doing in trying to stand against God's purposes for the world. That if you're here and you're trying to, to, to sit in the fence or keep a foot in both camps, that you'd see that, that, that you're, you're refusing to, to commit to this purpose that runs right through all of history. And finally, I also want to encourage those of us who are Christians that while not all of us are called to cross land and sea and publicly proclaim the gospel the way Paul is, and his companions do here, 
that if God's purpose for the world is centered on Jesus Christ, then there is no greater cause that we could devote our lives to. That while it might seem to those around you that you're wasting your life by devoting it to Christ and his church, that you're actually standing right at the center of God's purposes for the world. And they're the ones who are trying to fight against where all of reality is going. So we're going to look at verses 13 to 43 under three headings this morning. Uh, Firstly, saying in world history it is God who pulls the strings. In world history it is God who pulls the strings. And we'll spend most of our time in this first point. Before we get into Paul's sermon itself, it will help us picture where he and his companions are. And I've put a map on the back of the bulletin. It's taken from the ESV Study Bible. Last week we left Paul and Barnabas in Cyprus. Uh, they landed on one side of the island. They'd gone right across to the other side uh, on, to Paphos. Uh, and here in verse 13 they leave Paphos and go to Perga in Pamphylia. Uh, now, now you probably haven't... Uh, had much reason to say the words Perga or Pamphylia in the past week. Uh, They don't mean much to us, but but basically what's happened is that that they sailed 190 miles northwest from Cyprus, landed in modern-day Turkey, and travelled a few miles inland to the city of Perga. But they haven't stayed there long. Uh, They don't seem to have evangelised Perga at this point, though they will do that on their way back at the end of the next chapter. So they don't hang around Perga for too long, but but something does happen while they're there. Something uh, that's just mentioned here, but something that would have been uh, significant and caused a lot of anguish. And that is that John leaves them. Uh, One of their companions departs. So, well, well, who is this, this John? I say often that one of the, the little signs that the Bible isn't just a made-up story is that so many of the characters have the same name. If you read a, a made-up story, you read a novel, the characters will, will have different names. But, and, and, but in real life, it's different. Boys, boys and girls... If, if you go to school, it's unlikely that, that everyone in your class in school will have different names. There'll be, there'll be some people with the same names and you have to find out some way to, to distinguish between them. And in the New Testament, we have six Marys and five Johns. Uh, so it's important to know which John this is. And the answer is that this is the John we're told about back in chapter 12, verse 12, who is the other name, Mark. So this John Mark is actually the one who writes the Gospel of Mark. Uh, Colossians 4 tells us that he's a cousin of Barnabas. So that's who he is. We we know that. We can clarify that. But but why does he leave? Uh, Because Luke doesn't give us any details here in verse 13. Uh, he, He doesn't even say what the reaction to this was at the time. 
But when we get to the end of chapter 15, we're told that on the next missionary journey, Barnabas wanted to take his cousin John Mark with him, but Paul thought it best not to take someone who had withdrawn from them before and hadn't gone on to the work. And then there's this uh, sharp disagreement between Paul and Barnabas. Uh, Barnabas takes Mark and heads off to Cyprus, whereas Paul heads off in a different direction and takes Silas. So why did Mark leave at this point? Uh, what, what issue was there that caused him to, to leave? Uh, and Paul obviously thinks he shouldn't have left. Well, many possible reasons have been suggested for this. And ultimately, we just don't know. One of the reasons suggested is that Mark didn't want to go in the dangerous journey through the Taurus Mountains to Pisidian Antioch. Uh, the reason it's called Pisidian Antioch, by the way, is because there were six, 16 different cities named Antioch, including the one that they just left. You'll see it on the map before they go to Cyprus. They leave Antioch, they go to Cyprus. Now they're, they're in Antioch, but it's a different Antioch. Um, so just to keep our Johns and Marys and Antiochs straight, this is Pisidian Antioch. Uh, and to get, to get up there, there was a Roman road that took you up through the mountains. But it was known to be infested with bandits. Uh, boys and girls, if you want to draw a picture, maybe you're doing a worksheet, that, that's, that's great. But if, if you want to draw a picture, you could draw them going up a big mountain. And there's a road that goes through the mountain, but there's, there's robbers hiding on the mountain. Paul talks in 2 Corinthians eleven twenty six about being in danger from robbers. And this is likely at least one of the, the times he's referring to. Boys and girls, would you want to, to travel along a road where you knew that there were going to be robbers trying to get you, wanting to rob people that were going past? I, I don't think we want to do that. But, but Paul and those who are with him, they thought that telling people about Jesus was so important that they were going to go along that dangerous, dangerous road. And so some people say, well, well, Mark maybe left because he was scared. Possibly. Maybe it's more likely that there was some disagreement over strategy. Some suggest that Mark left because Paul was sick. Uh, and Mark thought it was madness for him to attempt this journey up through the mountains in the condition he was in. Uh, and there is a bit of evidence for that in the book of Galatians. Uh, Pisidian Antioch where they reach the end of verse 14 uh, as you'll see on the, the map it was in the Roman province of Galatia uh, Paul likely wrote the letter to the churches in Galatia shortly after this journey uh, and he reminds them in Galatians 4.13 he says you know it was because of bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first and if that ailment was a type of malaria, as some have suggested, then getting to the higher ground of Galatia would have been better for Paul than staying down around the coast. It might explain why, why they push on so quickly to get the high ground. We don't know. But what we do know is that the Paul who preaches this sermon in chapter 13, he has just faced the discouragement of losing a fellow worker. And he may well already be suffering the illness that he writes about in Galatians. So there are circumstances in Paul's life 
there, there are big things that have been happening that could discourage him. He, he, he hasn't just flown in and, and landed here in Pisidian Antioch in his private jet. He has gone through a lot, a rough journey, losing one of his companions, possibly illness. And yet when, he, when he's in the synagogue and when he's asked to open his mouth, he opens his mouth and he presents this absolutely majestic view of the God he knows is in absolute control of all things. And we're going to be in similar situations at times, perhaps often, where we need to lift our eyes off the circumstances, the discouraging circumstances of our lives to the things that we know by faith are true. To lift our eyes off the discouraging circumstances that we can see around us and by faith look to what we know is true. What do we know that's true? We know that both in world history in general and in our individual lives, God is in control of all things for his glory and for our good. So let's cast our eyes down this God-centered sermon and remind ourselves of that this morning. Just look at how many times God and God's actions are mentioned. Verse 17, it was God who chose Israel from all the people of the earth for his purposes. In the middle of verse 17, it was God who made the people great during their stay in Egypt. It wasn't simply the natural fertility of the Jews. God made them grow. In the last part of verse 17, it was God who led them out of Egypt with uplifted arm. In other words, God flexed his muscles in Egypt so that people would see his strength. In verse 18, it was God who was with them in the wilderness, or God who put up with them in the wilderness, or possibly carried them in the wilderness. Either way, he did both. And that shows what a great and patient God he is. In verse 19, it was God who destroyed seven nations they encountered in Canaan. Yes, human beings swung their swords and threw their spears and shot their arrows. But as Proverbs 21 tells us, the horse is made ready for the day of battle, but victory belongs to the Lord. In the second part of verse 19, it was God who gave Israel the land of Canaan as their inheritance. And if you give somebody something as an inheritance, you own it. It wasn't that the, the, the Canaanites and the other nations owned the land before Israel came along. God owned the land of Canaan and he gave it to whomever he pleased. In verse 20, it was God who raised up judges like Samson and Deborah and Gideon. Those rulers didn't raise themselves up. God raised them up. In verse 21, it was God who gave Israel their first king. And in verse 22, it was God who removed him, Saul, and raised up David instead. As Daniel once put it, God is the one who removes kings and sets up kings and prime ministers. And then in verse 23, this great plan of God culminated in bringing to Israel a saviour, Jesus, as he had promised in verse 25, the quotation from John the Baptist highlights that Jesus is at the very centre of God's plan. John isn't 
fit to, to untie his sandals. Then in verse 26, Paul says, To us has been sent this message of salvation. When Paul says to us, by the way, he's not just talking about Jews. He distinguishes there in verse 25 between those who are sons of the family of Abraham and those among them who fear God. Uh, that is, Gentiles who had come to trust in the one true God. But the big point is that he says to us, this message has been sent. Uh, and who's it been sent by? It's been sent by God. In verse 27, those who condemned Jesus simply fulfilled God's word, even though they didn't know it. And in verse 29, by crucifying Jesus, again without realising what they were doing, they were carrying out all that had been written of him. It looked like they had won. Uh, and doesn't it often look that way in the world, like the forces of evil have won? But how does verse 30 start but God, God raised him from the dead. And as a result, verse 32, Paul and his companions were there in Pisidian Antioch, bringing the good news that God had promised to the fathers. The promises which in verse 33, God had now fulfilled by raising Jesus from the dead. Just as he had promised in Psalm 2, Isaiah 55 and Psalm 16. In fact, such is Paul's emphasis here on what God has done, that, that in verse 37 he doesn't describe Jesus as Jesus or Christ or, or the Lord. He describes him as he whom God raised up. He whom God raised up. Then finally in verse 43, those who believe are urged to continue in the grace of God. Not just keep going in the faith, but continue in the grace of God. The sermon is all about God from beginning to end. Paul looks back over the whole sweep of world history, including the wickedest event in the history of the world, the rejection and crucifixion of the Son of God. And what does he see at every turn? He sees God pulling the strings in order to glorify himself and save a people for himself through Jesus Christ. Now, it's not like the Jews needed told that God was in control of history. Or maybe they did, actually, because, yes, they knew it in theory, but as they looked at the world around them, surely some of them were starting to doubt whether God was really in control. And even if he had been in control in the past, they didn't really know what the purpose of it all was. But now it's as if Paul turns on the light and shows them how it had all been leading up to the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus and to the news of what he had done being proclaimed to the nations of the earth. No wonder we read in verse 42 that the people begged them that these things might be told them in the next Sabbath because suddenly it all makes sense and they want to hear more. Maybe you've even experienced that. You, you've been brought up with the Bible. You, you've, you've sat in church, you've heard the Bible taught. You, you've learned some of the different stories of it, but it never really makes sense. And then you become a Christian and it's as, as if the light comes on and you can't get enough because you, you see how it all fits together, how it all points to the Lord Jesus. And that's what they were like. 
they had the Old Testament, but the Old Testament without the New is like a story without an end. Uh, reading the Old Testament without seeing how it points to Jesus is to miss out on who it's all about. But Paul had given them the key that unlocks the scriptures they knew so well. And they couldn't get enough. So how about us? How do we respond? How do you respond to this glorious, God-centered, Jesus-focused vision of world history? Well, I trust that it stirs you and energizes you and gives you confidence to keep taking this message to a lost world. But if our response this morning is just, well, well, that's very nice or, or, or that's quite interesting, at best, then we, we just haven't grasped this majestic God-centered view of what the world is all about. So what's going on in the world? How would you answer that? What's going on in the world? Is it rising prices, inflation? We could discuss those things and debate the reasons behind them all day, as many around us do. Is there more going on beneath the surface? But ultimately, the crises of our day are just footnotes in the story of what God is doing in the world. And if you're reading a book, you don't just read the footnotes. Even if you're one of those rare people like me who actually does read the footnotes, you don't just read the footnotes, you read the rest of the book as well. No one just reads the footnotes. But with those around us, it's as if they're studying the footnotes of world history and arguing about the footnotes of world history, like Alexander the Great and, and kings and, and queens and presidents. They're just footnotes. They're studying the footnotes and they're missing the whole story of what God is doing in the world. In world history, it is God who pulls the strings to glorify himself and save a people for himself through Jesus Christ. And the single most important thing about you this morning is how you respond to that message. The single most important thing about you, it's not your take on the footnotes, but it's how you respond to the story itself, the story of all reality. And that brings us to our second point this morning. So secondly, this morning, we see our alienation from God is proved by our rejection of his chosen king. Our alienation from God is proved by our rejection of his chosen king. How did the Jewish people react when their promised saviour came? The one who all of history was pointing towards, the one who had been prophesied by the prophets who were read every Sabbath in the synagogues, the one who when he came did nothing worthy of death. Well, absolutely shockingly in verse 27, they didn't recognise him. And they inadvertently fulfilled all those prophecies by condemning him. And if you want proof of the spiritual blindness of the human race, there you have it. The long-awaited Messiah came, the one they had heard about every week. And when he came, they looked at his spotless life. They heard his amazing teaching. They discussed his mighty miracles performed in front of their eyes. And what did they conclude? 
they concluded this man needs to die. This man must die. The greatest, most wonderful person the world has ever known walking among us. And we killed him. We killed him. And I say we because we can't just point the finger at those who lived in that day. Because how do you react to the coming of Jesus? Do you see him as at the centre of history? And not just at the centre of history in general, but, but as at the centre of your life? Is he at the centre of your life or, or is he just somewhere on the edges at best? And if that's the case, as it once was for every one of us, do you see how serious a thing that is when this Jesus is the one who all of history is aiming at? Maybe you accept that you're a sinner in general, but you've never seen how great your sin is to live in God's world, largely ignoring him and rejecting his Messiah. And do you realise this morning that it is possible to reject and despise Jesus Christ, both by being very, very bad and also by being very, very good? Because there are many people who sit in churches but think that they don't need to be born again because they believe that their church going saves them or their acts of charity or their devotion to their families. But Paul tells us here in verse 39 that Jesus frees us from everything we couldn't be freed from by the law of Moses. In other words, he's saying that the law of Moses can't save you. And the law of Moses... It is a declaration of what God says is good. The law of Moses, it's not what our society says is good. There's some overlap, but there's less and less. Our society's view of, of good is, is summed up by, by, by what they, they like to, to virtue signal about. The law of Moses isn't like that. It is God's revealed will. But even doing that can't save you. Even doing the things that God himself says you should do can't save you. And that's not a problem with the law of Moses. Because that's not, it's, it's just not what it was designed for. A tradesman can have a very good and expensive tool. But if he tries to use that tool for something it wasn't designed for, it won't work. And he, he can't take the tool back to the shop and say, well, this doesn't work because, because it does work, but it just doesn't work for what he's trying to use it for. And that's what it's like when we try and use the law to get right with God. That's what, what Paul had been doing his whole life before he was converted, trying to use the law to get right with God. It didn't work. Or to use another illustration... If one of my children were to touch something that I told them not to touch and they broke it, what would they need from me? Well, they wouldn't need the law. Well, they would as a first step to show them that they've done what I've told them not to do. Remember, Daddy said don't touch that. What did you do? So 
Yes, they need reminded of the law. But for me to just keep on repeating the commandment that they've already broken, it's not going to help them. They've already broken it. Just telling them the commandment isn't going to help them. What they need is forgiveness. What they need is reconciliation. And the law can't provide that. The law can point out what you've done. It can do that all day. But it can't fix the problem. Because it wasn't designed to do that. And in the same way, the law of Moses simply wasn't designed to free us from sin or, or to justify us as the word here really is. A uh, word freed is justified. What does justified mean? It means to be declared righteous. And we can never be declared righteous on the basis of the law of Moses because we can't keep it. The law of Moses can show us our sin. Once we're saved, it becomes the standard we're to live by, by God's grace. But, but it was never designed to save us. And trying, to, trying to, to set up and use it as a ladder to get to heaven is to reject the very Messiah who God has organized history around. Humanity's rejection of Jesus Christ, either by paying lip service to him, yet trying to gain our own salvation, or by rejecting him altogether and, trying, and living a wild life, either way, by being very good or by being very bad, we reject Jesus and it all just proves how complete our alienation from God really is by nature. Jesus Christ is at the very centre of history and men and women look at him and say, I don't need him, I don't want him. Truly the message of Christ crucified is a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But there is hope. There is hope. And that brings us to our final point this morning. Which is that there is salvation for all who will believe in him. There is salvation for all who will believe in him. Why does Paul mention the inability of the law of Moses to save them? Well, because he's now telling them about the ability of Jesus to do what the law of Moses can't do and could never do. Couldn't do it in the Old Testament, couldn't do it in the New. Verse 39 is a tremendous verse. By him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Maybe you think, well, having my slate wiped clean, more than that, having Jesus' righteousness chalked up to my account, it sounds good, but I've done worse things than the other people sitting in this building this morning. Or it sounds good, but I've gone to church too long without ever being born again, and it's too late now. But whatever you've done, or however long you've tried to quiet that voice of conscience, this message is for you. Everyone who believes is freed from everything. What a message to believe and proclaim. Everyone who believes is freed from everything. And maybe there's someone here this morning and you particularly need to feel the force of that word, everything. You think about some of the, the things that you've done. You wonder, are they included in the everything? Everything seems it seems too big a word, or, or your sin seems too big to fit into everything. But no sin 
that you take to Jesus in confession and repentance can ever be held against you. No sin that you take to Jesus in confession and repentance can ever be held against you. No matter how long you've gone on in it for, the power over it, the power of it over you is broken. Back in verse 29, Paul talks about the cross as the tree. Why doesn't he just say, say cross? Well, the word tree points back to the Old Testament pronouncement that anyone hanged on a tree was cursed. And so Jesus on the cross bore the curse that otherwise would have fallen on his people. The curse for the broken law of Moses that was due to fall on us fell on him instead. And as a result, we're freed from everything. Maybe you hear of someone in court and they're found not guilty of eight charges, but they're found guilty of three charges. But not with us. We walk out, we're freed from everything. All the charges, they're not dropped, but Jesus stands in our place. And and as a result, they're gone. They're gone. They can never be brought back against us. So how do you respond to all this? Because verse 41, there is the danger of being like those in Habakkuk's day who, who scoffed at what God said he would do. In Habakkuk's day, they didn't believe in God's threatened judgment. Here Paul is warning about not believing in God's promised salvation. But the result is the same. Disbelief leaves, leads to destruction. Disbelief leads to destruction. So Paul warns them not to make the biggest mistake they could ever make, a mistake that would haunt them for eternity and reject the one who all of history is about, the one who, who can deal with humanity's greatest problem, our sin, once and for all. And by God's grace, many believed. Many put their trust in Christ. In verse 43, following Paul and Barnabas, it means believing their message. It's a response that every gospel minister wants to see. And it's a response that will lead to joy before the angels in heaven. And perhaps by God's grace, some here today will respond as the way they did then. Perhaps you know today that your sin isn't really dealt with. Or you, you've been hoping that, that, that time can heal sin. That, that if you can leave enough time between that sin you committed and when you face God that you'll be okay. But time can't heal sin. Only Jesus can heal sin. But through him you can be freed from everything. Uh, and notice, just as we start to draw things to a close, that after this powerful sermon, Paul doesn't disappear off and think that his work is done. Uh, But Paul and Barnabas speak to these new converts. He doesn't jet in and jet out. He speaks to the new converts and and, and they urge them, uh, not not just Paul, but Paul and Barnabas, they urge them to continue in the grace of God. Which sadly we know from the book of Galatians that some of those there wouldn't do because they would go back to the law. And that's actually the biggest threat to continuing in the grace of God that the apostles would have had in view here. You know, we we think of the threat of people not continuing in the grace of God and we think they're going to go back to living a wild life and that's, that's a threat for some. But for those in the synagogue that day, 
they hadn't been leaving they hadn't been leading wild lives falling away from Christ for them what would it look like it would have looked like going back to law keeping going back to trying to to earn God's favor so there's the need to persevere but overall this section ends on this tremendously positive note of lives transformed as a risen Jesus comes to that synagogue by his word and spirit just as he's here this morning by his word and spirit. And just as we finish today, I want to do so by highlighting verse 36, where it tells us that David served the purpose of God in his generation. Wouldn't that be a great gravestone inscription, by the way? She served the purpose of God in her generation. He served the purpose of God in his generation. Some Christians want to serve the purpose of God in other generations. They don't really like the generation that God has has put them in. And so they'd rather go back in time and serve God in a different generation. But God hasn't given us that option. We're called to serve God in our generation. And how are we to do that? How can we serve the purpose of God in our generation? Well, quite simply, by coming to know the one who all of history is about. And through God's grace, by living each day for him. Amen. Well, if Jesus' coming really is at the centre of history, then we would expect the songs that God has given us to sing to focus on him. And we turn now to sing the other of the two psalms that Paul quotes here. It's Psalm 2 on page 2. Psalm 2, the first six verses. The psalm talks about God's coming Messiah, his Christ, Messiah and Christ, they're, they're, they're the same word. It talks about the rulers of the earth trying to fight against him, but it also talks about his ultimate victory. So whose side are you on this morning? Because who would dare fight against such a good and glorious king? And verse 6, we can do that as we sing. We, we can ask him and he... or. We, we can do what the son does. The son has asked that, that all the nations of the earth will be made his inheritance. And so in light of that, we can pray that God would give the nations of the earth to us. They've already been given to Christ. That's why John Knox could pray, give me Scotland. We can pray this for our communities, our towns, our cities, that God, having given them to Christ, would save a people for himself in these places. So Psalm 2, 1 to 6, we'll stand to sing praise.